did you know that there were no eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? There were no eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nobody saw that first breath fill up his chest. They weren't in the tomb. Nobody saw those first blinks of his eyes as, as his eyes started to, to open up. Nobody saw him sit up. Nobody saw him uh, get out of those linen wrappings. Nobody saw him uh, sit up and, and stretch out those tightened muscles. Nobody saw him get up onto those feet that hadn't been on the ground since he had uh, used them to uh, walk himself, albeit uh, in a rather weak, tattered state, to, to walk up that hill to the place of his crucifixion. Nobody saw those things happen that went on inside the tomb. However, that does not mean that there were not eyewitnesses to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus was, in fact, resurrected. You see, it's no problem to not have witnesses of an actual event itself. It's no problem. We can still figure out that something happened. We can still figure out with confidence and clarity what happened based on eyewitnesses still, but eyewitnesses of other facts, eyewitnesses of other events, eyewitnesses of other uh, things that we can put the pieces of the puzzle together and figure out what's happened. We look at evidence, right? That's what we call it. Right? We, we don't say uh, necessarily that we always have to see the thing happen. We look at evidence and we can figure out uh, with a lot of confidence exactly what happened, who was involved, all, all the things we want to know, right? And no one saw the young man light the match and set it to the field, but we research the field, we look at the field, we find a, 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 a book of matches there or a lighter or something like that. Uh, neighbors see the, the, the young man running from the field about the time that the fire was said to have started. And does anyone question who started the fire? No one uh, witnesses the burglar uh, go in and, and break open the safe and steal the guns and the jewelry. But neighbors witness someone that they'd never seen go in and out of that house before, coming out the side door with a duffel bag, getting into a car. A, a neighbor's security camera also picked up the image. Same guy, same description from the other neighbor when they described what they saw. We see it on the video. We see the car leave. The, the, the police then go and find in the trunk guns and jewelry matching the exact description of what is missing, what has been well documented, that it belongs to these people. And when we see those facts add up, does anyone question, that's the guy that stole the jewelry. That's the guy who took the guns, right? No one questions that. We're confident of that. But no one saw how he cracked the safe open. No one saw uh, how he uh, put it in the bag. You know, we didn't witness those things, but we have no doubts in our minds. We've got our man. We, we, this is the guy. We got the guy. See, things happen all the time where we don't see the event itself, but we have eyewitnesses of the, like I said, the evidence. Eyewitnesses who can uh, show us what has happened, who was involved, even though they didn't see the event itself. Well, in the same way, we can establish some facts that make it pretty clear what Jesus has done. We can establish the fact, like we did a couple weeks ago, that Jesus did indeed die. 
right? We, can, we saw that a couple weeks ago. We looked, because there are skeptics. There are people who will argue that, you know, well, maybe Jesus didn't just die, and I won't re-preach that, uh, that sermon, but maybe Jesus just swooned. Maybe he just fainted. Maybe he was given a drug, right? We, we established, no, no, no. Beyond the shadow of reasonable doubt, Jesus, in fact, died. So we can establish that fact. And then secondly, like what we're going to do today is we can establish the fact that that tomb uh, was empty, that Jesus was seen after that. That Jesus was seen killed and then seen alive after his death. And if you establish that someone was killed and you establish that they were then seen alive, is there any reasonable doubt that that person rose from death? Is there any other conclusion that we can come to? Like the young man in the field, like the, like the burglar at the home stealing the guns and jewelry, it's just as certain with the evidence that we have. So this morning I want to bring you a message called Certainly Seen. Certainly Seen. And we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 for this uh, message this morning. And here's the big idea that I want us uh, to consider, that I want us to, to think about today. Uh, as Jesus was certainly seen, that that, that is a, a confident uh, fact that, that, that we can know as a fact. As Jesus was certainly seen, we should certainly live as witnesses ourselves, witnesses of what we know to be true, witnesses of what we are convicted of, that we logically, with our minds, not a, not a leap of faith, as they say, not that we don't have faith, we have faith, but it's grounded, it's rooted, it's real, it's logical. We're not gonna be shaken by life circumstances. We're not gonna be shaken by some silly argument. We've already done the homework. We know this is the way it is, and if this is the way we know it is, then by golly, we better be out there living just like the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus alive lived. If we believe he really rose from the grave and lived again, we better be living like him. And I'll tell you more about why we better be uh, here shortly. But first, let's start by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3. And for right now, we'll go through verse 8, and we'll cover just a little bit more of that, of this passage as well, because uh, Paul says a, a lot of stuff here that's uh, pertinent to what we're discussing today in 1 Corinthians 15. So starting in verse 3 here, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now at the time of his writing. But some have fallen asleep. Verse 7 says, I apologize, there it is. Verse 7 says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Now, me also is Paul. Paul is the one writing this, so that's Paul. So I want to actually start right there. I want to start at the end of what we just read, verse, verse 8 there, and then we'll, we'll back up and we'll, we'll kind of uh, quickly go through the rest of the witnesses here, but let's just start at verse 8 with what Paul uh, uh, says here about himself. Verse 8 tells us that, that uh, Jesus, after he had risen from the grave, appeared to Paul. Paul, the apostle Paul, was one of the witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. 
We have the account of how that went down in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 26, right? Uh, that first gets told to us uh, by Luke, and all of it's from Luke because Luke wrote the book of Acts. But then we have accounts uh, in chapter 22 and chapter 26 where Paul is retelling his story, the story of uh, meeting the Lord on uh, the road to Damascus, right? Paul was on his way to Damascus, and that's where the Lord appeared to him. Now, Think about the importance, the significance of Paul being a witness to the resurrection. Paul's uh, life and ministry, if you want to say it that way, they were one and the same, right? Paul's life was ministry, as ours should be as well. But, but Paul's, in a very direct way, all he did was what we would call ministry, direct ministry. That's what he was, was doing. His life and ministry are a massive testimony to the truthfulness of the claims uh, that he claims to have seen the risen Christ. Massive testimony. Because Paul wasn't just some run-of-the-mill unbeliever who then decided, you know what, I'll try the Jesus thing. Everybody else is jumping on the train. I'll try. He was not a run-of-the-mill unbeliever who just decided to try Christianity. He was well-studied in the scriptures, yet he did, like a lot of the distinguished Jewish leaders at the time, he he chose a path that was uh, contrary to Christ. He chose a path that was in opposition opposition to Christ initially, right? He he not only believed that Jesus and his followers were blasphemers against God, he zealously persecuted them, uh, sought out to have them uh, bound in chains, thrown in prison, uh, killed, stoned to death at times. And he didn't just persecute the church when he ran into a Christian. It wasn't just, you know, like he bumped into somebody in line at Walmart and it's like, wait, you're one of them? No, he sought them out. He hunted them down right? Jesus met him on one of his hunting escapades. When he was going to find Christians, that is where Jesus found Paul. That is where Jesus, resurrected Jesus, appeared to Paul. But something after Paul living like this, as Saul at the time was his name, something changed his mind. After living this way, as, as a devoted, zealous, passionate uh, follower in his mind of the scriptures, persecuting Christians, persecuting the church, having them killed, hunting them down. Something changed his mind where he just went in the total opposite direction. Something just changed his mind. What could it, what, what could it be? That's the proper response right there. It's laughable. What, what, what could have changed his mind? He saw the risen Christ. You don't go from this side of the aisle when we're talking about these two opposites. You don't go from that side of the aisle to that side of the aisle without something like a, a dead man raising up from death happening and appearing to you and saying, why are you persecuting me? But beyond his conversion, look at Paul's lifelong ministry. Look at his fearlessness in proclaiming the gospel. Look at the thoroughness that, that he had in traveling to as many places as he could to proclaim the message of the resurrection. Look at the churches he started. Look at his genuine care and concern for those churches to write back to them, to circle back around and visit them. Even though he had been beaten in some of these cities, he returned days later to see how things were going. Look at the, the persecution he endured and the attitude that he had through it all. Look at the letters he wrote, all the letters he wrote, how many books of the Bible he wrote. Look at your New Testament, how many of those are written by him. Look at how he went to his grave still feverishly reporting that Jesus rose from his grave. You don't just do that for a made-up story. We're building evidence here 
guys, it, it, make sure you remember what we're working on here. You don't just do this for something that's fake. I don't care that it was 1,982 years ago or so. This is evidence. The distance from when it happened to now does not matter. Okay, it doesn't matter that this was, uh, you know, almost 2,000 years ago. The evidence is the evidence, well recorded, well documented, and not contradicted by anyone who was living during that day. But there, of course, are plenty of other witnesses listed here, so I better continue on, right? Peter is mentioned in verse 5 by his Aramaic name, uh, Cephas, or um, uh, some people who think they know how to speak uh, dead languages will, will call him uh, Kephas. Uh, I like Cephas. It's just a little easier and more natural for me to say. Uh, but this is his, his Aramaic name, Simon, Peter. This is, this is his Aramaic name, uh, Cephas. And much of what has been said about Paul that I've already spent my time and got all excited about, uh, much of what can be said about Paul can be said about Peter, right? His dedication to the message and to the church, his care and concern for the Lord's, uh, Lord's church, his bold preaching, his willingness to also die, uh, not just for the faith, you know, we, we say the faith all the time, but to die for the, me the message of the resurrection, never recanted, never went back and said, you know, uh, well, maybe I didn't remember everything quite right, you know, never said uh, that, that it wasn't true. In fact, continuously, uh, like I said with Paul, feverishly, fervently continued to make sure everybody he could possibly get to knew that he saw Jesus raised from the dead. He, or, well, he, we already established that. He didn't see him raised from the dead. He saw him risen from the dead. Just, he just kept that up. Just like Paul, we could say many of those same things uh, about Peter. So Peter is also a significant witness of the resurrected Christ, which becomes more evidence for us. The text says Jesus appeared to, to Cephas or Peter and then to the 12, right? Then to the 12. Now, the 12 here is probably not a reference to the literal number of people uh, that were uh, present at the appearance that Paul is referencing here. We don't know the specific reference anyway. We, we could try to match it up and say like, oh, well, since we have this appearance over here in the Gospels, that must be what it is. We'll, we'll talk in just a minute why we know there was more than just what, what's been enumerated here or even in the Gospels, okay? But right here, I don't believe the 12 is a reference to literally 12 guys. I don't think it could be if this is in chronological order like it appears to be. Paul seems to be listing, he appeared here, then here, then to this, and then to these people. So if this is in chronological order, it does not seem that this could be literally the 12, meaning all 12 of the guys, right? More than likely, Paul is using this, this term. Uh, it's probably been passed down to him uh, this way because he starts this all with, I delivered uh, to you what I also received. And so he is using, it seems, okay, this is, uh, as Derek Baker would say, my studied opinion, all right? It seems that he is referencing a group of guys by their common name. Even though he's not referencing all 12 of them, he's still calling them the 12 because they are guys from that group. We still actually do this today. It was com very common then and it's still somewhat common uh, today. I'll give you an example. Um, talking about the Bible, I might say that Jesus, when he fed the 5,000, he told them all to sit down on the ground. He told 5,000 to sit on the ground. And when I teach it, when I talk about it, I'll say, and then the 5,000 sat down. 
I'm telling you which people were the ones that were told to sit down. I would say the 5,000 sat down. Now, would it be appropriate for you to be like, Jake believes, because what he said, Jake believes that literally all 5,000 men sat down and not a single one happened to stand up or kind of crawl over to, to, to grab something real quick and come back. No, that would be outlandish. That would be ridiculous. No, I'm sure some people were moving around, okay? After our shake and howdy time, it's all we can do to get you guys sat back down, right? To get ready for the rest of the service, all right? That, that, that's that's un, unreal. Let's uh, fast forward to uh, something a little more uh, contemporary. Uh, basketball people, right? Uh, I'm talking about you basketball fans. Uh, I, I, I know they're called players, okay? I, I, I understand what, what they're called. They are called players, not basketball people. You who are in basketball, we refer to the starting five, right? And we'll talk about uh, attributes of the starting five. We'll say that's the best starting five in all of basketball, right? They're, they're, that starting five for, I better not say a team because some of you will cheer and some of you will get upset. So uh, that starting five for, insert your favorite team there, um, they're the best passers and shooters in the league right now. Now, do you mean that literally all five of those guys are the best passers? And all five of those guys are the best shooters. No, but I'm still going to every time say the starting five is this way. The starting five is that way. You know, I don't have an th- uh, hour-long sports center segment where I can sit and talk about each one of them individually. I'm going to say the five, the starting five. I'm going to reference them like that. So we still do this kind of thing today. And I, so I think Paul is referencing that early appearance right after Peter that is in the Gospels when Jesus appears in their midst minus Judas, obviously, minus Thomas. Because we know that that was a later appearance. We know that Thomas uh, was missing at an earlier one. And so I think Paul is just letting us know that Cephas, Peter, and then guys from that group, all of them who could be there, all of them who were gathered there at the time, he's letting us know that the ones who were there were of the 12. I wish he would have just said it that way. It would have been a little, little clearer for us. And I only uh, go on that little spiel for you because there will be people who will say, well, look, the Bible's untrustworthy. It says the 12. Now, you know good and well, Judas had already hung himself, hanged himself, right? That's actually proper if you're going to say it right. Uh, you know, people will say those things. And are we going to sit here and be like, okay, well, there's an argument for you. And that's a, an argument that's accepted by uh, many Bible scholars. It's not something that I just came up with this past week uh, trying to figure out what in the world's going on here, okay? So, so there you go for what it's worth. Now the next appearance that Paul uh, mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 here is in verse 6. This is extremely valuable testimony here, you guys. In verse 6 he says, After that, so this is later, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. More than 500 brethren at one time. Now, there's a lot of, there's a lot of folks who, who believe uh, the, the way that it says brethren, that this is another one of these instances where we say, well, there were 5,000 men at the feeding of the 5,000, right? So we say, well, my goodness, there's probably uh, at least an average of one uh, woman and one child with each one of those, probably far more. And so we say, well, the feeding of 5,000 was probably 15,000 or more. Well, more than 500 brethren, there may have been 1,000 or more people here at this uh, particular uh, sighting of Jesus, this appearance. But we know more than 500, at, at least we know that much, more than 500 at one time. For a long time, 
I didn't realize just how valuable this particular evidence is. These, these 500, more than 500 at one time. I mean, all the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus that Paul enumerates in 1 Corinthians 15 are significant for different reasons, uh, some for the same reasons. They're, they all have uh, a specific um, uh, lesson, I think, in why they are so important and why Paul decides to mention each one of those. But the 500 here, we need to understand what the, the 500 witnesses at one time means. First of all, speaking of refuting skeptics, first of all, it provides powerful evidence against the modern argument that those who claim to have seen Jesus resurrected from the dead, that they were just hallucinating. Now, some of you are, are good at just immediately thinking in common sense and thinking uh, critically and, and, and like that, but let's think together about this. What is a hallucination? Where does a hallucination happen? In here, right? By its definition, by its medical definition, it is something that's going on in your mind. They happen in your mind. The things that you see in a hallucination cannot, by definition, be seen by other people. It's in your mind. Not theirs. It's not actually out here in what we call the real world. And so you can't have 500 people participating in the same hallucination. That's impossible. So 500 witnesses at one time is super important for Paul to share that with us because here's just another thing that all the skeptics, 2000, it took them this long to come up with it. You know, well, they came up with it probably in like 17, 1800, something like that. You know, start throwing out this hallucination theory we find out that it's, it's garbage. It's, it's literally destroyed by what Paul has shared here. It's, it's absurd, this, this hallucination theory, because immediately they'd start uh, talking. Immediately they'd start contradicting each other with you know, his appearance. Oh, he was mangled. You, you remember what he looked like on the cross? Picture that, you know, but, but covered up a little more. Oh, no, 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 he, he had a heavenly body. He was, he was flawless, didn't even have the scars anymore, right? As soon as they start sharing their hallucinations, we'd immediately discover hogwash, garbage. And so more than 500 witnesses at once shows us the hallucination theory and some other things cannot be possible. Secondly, I would say Jesus' appearance to so many people at, at one time it's destined to produce airtight evidence for one argument or the other. One side's going to win because more than 500 people uh, saw him at one time. If this was a fictional tale, there would, be, uh, there would have been without question a percentage of these 500 plus uh, who went rogue, right? Who didn't follow the teleprompter, who, who went off script, right? There, there would have been some percentage who, who wouldn't have stuck with it. If this was some kind of large-scale lie, some conspiracy that these people had all agreed to participate in, to spread around, there would have been ones who would have either changed the story or confessed that it was a lie, that the whole thing was made up when the persecution came, right? When the threats came, when the money started being offered. You know, hey, if you recant, and, and you'll come and do it publicly over here and over there. If you'll make sure that we have some witnesses hear you say this, oh man, we will line your pockets, right? We, we know they weren't above offering money. How'd they get Judas, right? So we know they do it. <laughs> evidence, 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 I'm telling you. As soon as uh, the threats, the persecution, the torturing, uh, the, the, the offers of money, the bribery, all this stuff happened, somebody... Probably many bodies would have offered themselves up to say, you know what, 
it's not worth it. If I can get out of the torture or the persecution, if I could get, you know, 30 pieces of silver, if I could get some, my hands on some gold, you know, it's not worth it. You know, I'll give this up in a heartbeat. Didn't happen. Guys, even among 12 men, I don't have that many fingers. Even among 12 men, one of them gave in to the, the, the weakness and the temptation. That's just 12. And that was 12 who were with Jesus for three and a half years. And you're telling me of more than 500 people, somebody didn't give in? Somebody didn't give in to the weakness, the temptation? I think it's important to mention that even Judas, the one we're obviously talking about, even Judas in Matthew 27 verse 4 says, I've betrayed innocent blood. Less than 24 hours after the, the act of his betrayal, right, it started a little sooner, but less than 24 hours after the act of his betrayal, he was saying, hmm, I've betrayed innocent blood here. He immediately, even the one who gave in to the weakness and the temptation, uh, who, who didn't change the story, just offered over the guy, even he was like, you know, I, I've messed this up because this guy doesn't deserve this at all. But more than 500, and we're supposed to just assume, even without any contradictory testimony, without a, a single record of any of them changing their minds, contradicting others, admitting the whole thing was a sham, we're supposed to believe these kinds of short-sighted theories. That, that, you know, well, it was, I mean, it could just be a large-scale conspiracy, you know. That's not the way evidence works in court or in common sense logic. What's reasonable? What's, the, what's the, the, the most reasonable conclusion here? What the Bible says is true. And then look at what Paul says in the second half of verse 6. Paul invites people at that time, in, in, in that, the, the time when he's writing to this audience, he invites them to seek out and interview these people, right? Examine the testimony for yourselves. Please be my guest. Investigate this, right? Why, why else? There's no other conclusion you could come to as to why he decided to say, by the way, most of whom remain until now. Why else? Why else would he say, you know, by the way, all these people I'm talking about, you know, I, I don't have room to name them by name. I don't have that much parchment or uh, the ability to write all that. Why else would he say, most of these people are still alive? It doesn't prove anything just that they're still living. What proves it is, go check me on this. You can go ask for yourself. Go, 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 go investigate this. Please, be my guest. Check it out. That's the only reasonable explanation for why Paul uh, would, would say this. Because he knew that these people had actually seen the risen Christ all at one time. And he knew what that means. He knew how important that was to them. And he knew that these 500, you go ask any one of them, the ones who are still alive, and it was many of them, the majority of them. He knew not a one of them, after seeing that, would deny it. This is evidence, people. This is real. Next in Paul's list here, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, he mentions uh, Jesus' appearance to James. 
verse 7, okay, he says that, that then he appeared to James. Now, based on what we read over in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, James, the son of Zebedee, because there's a few Jameses in the Bible, James, the son of Zebedee, was, was killed. And he was killed uh, on our timeline. He was killed before Paul would have been writing 1 Corinthians 15. So this is, we know this is not James, the son of Zebedee. It wasn't that James, okay? But because of this and some other evidence that, uh, for the sake of time, we'll continue on, um, we suspect with good uh, suspicion, good reasons, that this is probably uh, Jesus's brother, James. Now, if that's the case, if our suspicions are correct, if our studied opinions are correct, this is also very important because in uh, John chapter 7, verse 5, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus's brothers kind of mock him. They are not followers at that time. But then we come to Acts chapter 1, verse 14, and Jesus' brothers are disciples who are in the room praying fervently at the time. They're following Jesus. I'll ask like I did with Paul. Hmm, what could have changed the tune? What could have changed? If they didn't believe him while he was alive, there's, there's your first big hint. If they didn't believe him while they lived with, I mean, kind of because he was traveling a lot, but they grew up with the guy. If they didn't believe him, his, their own brother, who they were around quite a bit, I'm sure, while he was alive, what on earth after his death could have caused them to decide, okay, I'll follow this guy who was crucified. He was risen, right? Obvious conclusion no other real arguments that you could come to, right? No other conclusions that you could come to, I should say. James saw his brother risen from the dead, and I would say his other brothers did as well, and that's why in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we see that they were disciples of Jesus's. Now, the second part of verse 7 says that Jesus then appeared uh, to all the apostles. Okay, so now all the apostles, uh, Paul is now undoubtedly referring uh, to all the apostles at the time. All those we would think of, the normal gang, Peter and the whole gang, excluding Judas, of course, uh, because he had already killed himself at this time, but including Thomas now, right? Whom we know was not at uh, one of the earlier appearances, but then later did see Jesus with the rest of the apostles, even, even felt the wounds, right? Put his hands on Jesus's body to, to remove any kind of, I hesitate to use the word because I, I, I hate that Thomas always gets the, the doubting Thomas uh, thing. I, I think he was just really thorough. I don't like to beat him up over that. But, but to remove any doubt, to remove any misunderstandings of, of what he was seeing, what his fellow apostles had seen, he touched him. He felt his body. He was part of, uh, he felt uh, parts of Jesus. Now, one final thing when it comes to the evidence that I'd like to point out about these appearances that Paul enumerates in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 5 through 8, where he talks about the appearances, is that this is not uh, a detailed or exhaustive list. Think of the evidence we've already discussed. Think of the things we've already discussed. And this is not a detailed list. I, and I'm not saying that because I'm saying, oh, now flip over here and I'll show you the detailed. We, we, we don't have necessarily uh, a detailed list of every single appearance. But know that there were more, probably far more. Yes, we know uh, some of you may have been, uh, you know, kind of these uh, scholars who are hot on the trail, you know, Bible scholars out there. Uh, I know there's some of you out there who are thinking, well, why didn't he mention Mary and the women? 
Well, I don't know. I have plenty of suspicions and I don't necessarily have the time to get into all that. But um, he doesn't mention them first, but he doesn't say that Peter was first. He's the first one he lists. But many people say, well, the Bible says first he appeared to Peter. Well, it doesn't say that. That's not, that's not where, this, where this starts. So we know he appeared to women first, right? That the, the Mary and the other Marys and um, Salome and all these other people saw him first. So there's more. But over in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, that's what really is mind-blowing, okay? These post-resurrection appearances of Jesus like this went on for more than 40 days. I, I think sometimes... I think sometimes that we, uh, we, we have in our minds, without really thinking it through, so I'm not beating up on myself or you guys, uh, that sometimes we think Jesus rose from the dead, he gave the great commission, and boom, beam me up, Father. <laughs> I, we think that that's kind of how it went down. No, 40 days, right? Uh, right here. He presented himself alive after his suffering, right, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So here he is again, not in a corner, not off where, you know, he's teaching privately, trying to get a kind of a private uprising going and then when he's got enough followers, oh, it's time to revolt. No, the whole time of his ministry, he's wide open. He's out in the open. Everybody can see what he's doing. Everybody can hear what he's doing. You can't really lie about him without it being known it was a lie. Ultimately, they still crucified him with everybody knowing it was a lie, right? But here he is even after his death and he's just, he's teaching 40 days of appearing to people and, and sharing, you know, more information about the kingdom of God. There should be some real, real good evidence out there against his resurrection if he didn't raise from the dead because there's some real, real bold claims made in the Bible about his resurrection. 40 days of this stuff. Paul has listed his list for specific reasons. I told you, I believe each one of them uh, kind of has a certain uh, specific um, role to fill in, in providing us with some evidence in our minds. You know, why James was so important, why Paul was important, why the 500 were important. They all had kind of specific reasons, but there were far more than just what's listed in 1 Corinthians 15. And so knowing the credibility of these witnesses, right? None of them recanted. None of them, uh, ha there's no recordings uh, of any of these, these eyewitnesses uh, saying that it was a lie. None of the people who were alive at that time said, you know, I claimed it at one time, but, you know, it didn't really happen. It was a conspiracy, right? So the credibility is great. Having no contradictory testimony uh, by any of them. Uh, recognizing the fact that they stood up and, and proclaimed this. That, that there was an immediate reaction by the people who had seen it. They went out and proclaimed it to people and wouldn't shut up about it. Knowing that they had nothing to gain except, uh, you know, the, the loss of uh, many of their family members who would disown them. Uh, money, houses, businesses, homes, many comforts that they would lose. That's really all they stood to gain in this life by, by telling this story. Knowing all of these things and knowing with great confidence that these apostles who had seen him went to their graves preaching this, we can logically, with, with our minds thinking about it, we can logically conclude Jesus was seen alive after he died. People saw him with their own eyes and their lives were changed 
dramatically. That, that's an understatement. Dramatically by this. So Jesus was certainly seen. Certainly seen. Now, as I stated at the beginning, if the resurrected Christ was certainly seen by all these eyewitnesses, we who believe this, who have investigated this and studied this and know this to be true, we should live as witnesses of a risen Savior. So look at what, what Paul goes on to write a few verses, verses later here in uh, verses 11 through 12. He says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, right? As a result of all this, this resurrection and these appearances, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that, here's what was preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, in the context here, Paul is just moving on to talk some more about the significance, the importance, and some details about the resurrection. But what I want you to notice for our purposes here this morning is that he said that he and the eyewitnesses of the resurrection, other people who have seen this, this group of people, what have they gone on to do? They preach. And he does more than imply that what they preach is the resurrection. They preach that he was seen alive. Refute it if you can. <laughs> that was their response after having seen him risen from the dead. And the New Testament bears out the fact that, that all of the Lord's church, every one of you in this room who is part of Christ's church, all of us are to be living as witnesses. Right? Not undercover Christians. Not part-timers. <laughs> We're to be changed by this. If, if they saw it and it changed what they did, the way they were living their lives and how they, they, they uh, behaved from then on out, if nothing changes, if we don't look like witnesses, can we really conclude that we've witnessed anything? If you believe it, you're supposed to be living like it, living as a witness. So uh, first of all, I will say it's a natural response. Those who witnessed the resurrected Christ naturally responded, yes, with excitement, but by going out and telling others, reporting what they had seen. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were arrested for preaching. Uh, verses 1 and 2 say clearly that they were apprehended because what were they preaching? Starts with an R. Are you sure? Say it like you're sure. Resurrection. Amen, brother. <laughs> That's why they were apprehended. Verses 1 and 2 says, because they were preaching resurrection from the dead. Like, we don't have to guess. We don't have to assume that that was part of it. It says it right there for us. And as that situation unfolds, in Acts chapter 4, verse 17, we learn that the council was concerned that this message, the resurrection, that this message was going to spread further. And so that's why they were, you know, trying to talk amongst themselves and figure out what to do because they were worried that that, that verse tells us that they were going to spread this message even further. And so in Acts chapter 4, verse 20, after they were commanded to stop preaching Christ, Peter and John told the council there that we cannot stop. We can't stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We saw it. We can't just say it was made up. Then we would be lying we can't stop speaking about what we've seen. I think also that the, the, the women, those, those first um, witnesses of the resurrection, I think those women make for a fantastic example for us uh, of, of how we should respond after having discovered that, yeah, Jesus really did raise from the dead. Over in Matthew chapter 28, verse 8, we read this a couple weeks ago. It says, and they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. Now, yes, these women were told 
to go do this. They were told to go and report, to go give these instructions, report what they had seen and give some instructions where the disciples should go meet Jesus. Yes, they were told to do that, but, but the emotions that are shared with us here, the attitude that is shared with us here, the actions that are shared with us in this verse go far beyond simple obedience for obedience's sake. Something else was going on here. They were excited because of the message that they had to share. The message that they had seen was true. They weren't just told, hey, here's what you need to go tell the disciples. They were being told by the resurrected Christ. They saw it. So yes, they were excited. And we see that they left uh, quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to tell the others, oh, oh, if only the resurrection would have this kind of effect on us today. If only uh, this kind of profound impact could be had uh, in us today because of our belief in the resurrection, that it was that real in us after having examined the evidence, knowing it logically to be true, beyond reasonable doubt, so that we'd be like them. So that, so that first of all, we had a, a healthy fear, right? Knowing that Christ's resurrection means that this is all very real, that this matters and our response is going to matter. And this is going to affect every moment of our lives going forward from now on. Whether we live in, in uh, rebellion to it, it's going to matter. Or whether we live in obedience to it, it's going to matter. All that great fear would be wonderful if we could, we could have that healthy fear that they had. But then also the, the great joy so that the effect of the resurrection would be, would be seen and understood by everyone around us that we believed it and we lived in a certain way because of it and that it just, we were so filled up with the joy from it that it just overflowed and spilled out to others. Wow, that, that, that would be like it was real in our minds. And then also that we, that we might, uh, in a sense, run to report it to others, to tell others about it. Like Mary and the rest of the women, knowing the eternal difference that this news of Christ's resurrection makes. Oh, that, that, that we, would, we would too, in a sense, ha have this sense of urgency about it. That souls are hanging in the balance. And I can't get to them all, but by golly, I'm going to get to many. <laughs> I'm going to at least get the message to them and let them know and, and, and let them do with it what they will. But I cannot stop speaking about what I believe with all my heart, mind, soul, strength, every bit of it. We see these examples in Scripture showing us that this is a natural response, but it's also a responsibility. Jesus instructed his disciples to go and share this information with the world. If a supervisor tells uh, one of his underlings, <laughs> if a supervisor tells one of his employees to do something, what do we say that task has now become to that employee? His responsibility. If it doesn't get done, who do we go to? If it gets done and it's done well, who do we praise? Whose responsibility was it? The one who was instructed to do it, right? It becomes a responsibility. Well, sharing the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which is the linchpin that holds it all together, that makes it so powerful, it's our responsibility. In Mark chapter 9, verses 34 through 38, uh, we hear some very important teaching from Jesus. And I want you to listen closely here. It says, the scripture says there, Mark writes, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone, 
anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, okay, there's a message there that's important too. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, the gospels sake, will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever, listen to this part, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, or in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is very clear. Anyone who wants to follow him, this, this, this applies to everybody, anyone who wants to follow him, must be so dedicated to him and his gospel. The message of his death, burial, and resurrection needs to be so dedicated to that, sold out to that, that it's more important to, to us than our own lives. It doesn't mean you literally have to become a martyr, that you have to die for the faith. But by golly, everybody who believes this ought to go to their grave still believing it. And if someone threatens to make that an early grave, unless you recant... Put this body in the early grave and I'll go be present with the Lord. Can't threaten me with uh, martyrdom, right? You can't, you can't threaten me with uh, being in the presence of Christ. We talk about how wonderful it is that these apostles, these eyewitnesses, all went to their grave still proclaiming it. Oh, it's great for them to do it. But I mean, that's radical for us to do it, right? No. Do we believe it or don't we? Jesus said if you're ashamed of him, if you're not sold out completely to him, if you're ashamed of him and his words, he's going to be ashamed of you when he returns. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And then of course in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus gave specific, very specific instructions. He, he told his disciples on that, that mountainside, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. It is a responsibility. That is the supervisor, the great supervisor, giving the task to his followers to, to participate in that process. Every Christian is to be participating in that process, going, making disciples, baptizing them, and further teaching them in the faith, further teaching them in, in sound doctrine. We've been instructed by the Lord himself before, right, in Mark chapter 9, and after his resurrection here in Matthew chapter 28 to share his story. So it should be a natural response, and we can see clearly that it's also a responsibility that we have but we have to keep in mind as well that it's a resurrection message. Any invitation without the resurrection is ultimately pretty uninviting. Any sacrifice without the resurrection is ultimately impotent. Any love without the resurrection is ultimately unloving. Any help without the resurrection is actually mostly unhelpful. It's not lasting, right? Any Lord without the resurrection is ultimately not a savior. And any claim to deity without the resurrection is actually non-deity. It's not divine at all. The resurrection, like I said, is the lynch 
linchpin of Christianity. Without the resurrection, you can't prove Jesus is the Son of God. And you really have nothing to invite people to. Where's the hope? Where's the hope to continue? Where, where's the, the convincing fact that this is better than anything that I can muster up for myself? It's not there. It's, it's not present. Paul also wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 17 through 19, he said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. The resurrection is the hope. We talked about this last week, right? Uh, our hope is in the resurrection because as Paul goes on to explain in verses 20 through 23, and I won't read it, but he goes on to, to explain that Christ's resurrection means all who are in Christ, that's the important part, got to be in Christ, all who are in Christ will also be raised. Raised to eternal life when he comes again to reward the faithful and to punish the unfaithful, the, those in rebellion to him. The resurrection is the power. It was preached and presented as proof by Peter in Acts chapter 2. It was proclaimed in Acts chapter 3. It was promoted and greatly disturbed the Jewish leaders in Acts chapter 4. It's all about the resurrection. Abundant grace was upon those, the scriptures say, who were testifying to it, to the resurrection. In Acts chapter 4 verse 33, the apostles shared it while on trial with the high priest, the resurrection. They shared it with the high priest while standing before his council for a second time in Acts chapter 5 verse 30. It was shared by Peter to a Gentile audience in Acts chapter 10 verse 40. The resurrection is the power. It was preached by Paul among philosophers in Acts chapter 17. It caught the attention of those at Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, verse 32. Paul was put on trial because of it. Long trial. His life hung in the balance for a long time. In Acts chapter 23, verse 6, we, we see one example of that. Jesus' death on the cross was 100% necessary. And we'd be completely lost without it. We needed him to die as our substitute to pay for our sins 100%. But if then he was just buried and stayed dead in the grave, never risen, that great sacrifice would have been in vain. That great sacrifice would have ultimately been ineffective. The resurrection of Jesus is our proof of God's power over death. It's our proof that he actually does have power over death, the ability to grant eternal life, the, the proof of our own future resurrection to eternal life if we're faithful, if we are in Christ when he returns. So always proclaim, always spotlight, always emphasize the resurrection. Don't forget it and go and spread the word. 